0: course, is the very first song of our guest today, Judy Jackson and Worth It. He is an award-winning journalist. He's a, a correspondent, the Africa correspondent for the BBC, and he's on the line, Andrew Harding. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here on SAFM.
1: Good morning, Michelle. Lovely to be on. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, we've been following uh, your stories, obviously, with great interest, particularly when it comes to South Africa as well. Andrew, let's start uh, close to home. That particular song, Judy Jackson, takes you uh, into the heart of your family. Yes.
1: I, I hadn't heard of her until I was in London last year. Remember when we could fly? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> what's that? To London, and my son, um, my 17-year-old son, uh, we just got off the plane and he determined to drag me to a to a jazz concert in north london and i wasn 't really very keen and we queued in the rain and got inside and uh and there was Judy Jackson, and uh, and it was just a wonderful, amazing energy and beautiful music. And uh, I thought I would remember that moment with that song.
0: You know, I, the reason I was interested in, in starting off with that song was because it did talk to so much of where we are at now. The fact that we could fly, the fact that you could be in a small space or a large space, whatever the case may be, and listen to music in the flesh and i wondered how you even as a journalist are reassessing the spaces the lack of spaces in your life
1: it's been a bit of a learning curve for me i covered ebola uh, in west africa and uh, spent a lot of time in sierra leone and places so i was kind of familiar with the dangers but I think I, I initially here, but because that Ebola was born by um, you know by touch, you really needed to touch people, bodily fluids, and so on. Um, so we we felt that we could police ourselves quite easily there, relatively easily here. And I kind of initially took the same approach here and was quite, uh, I suppose, cocky about it. Hmm. And uh, you know, as journalists, we're still allowed to go out and about and travel around. And it's taken me a while, I think, to realize quite how rigorous we have to be in terms of uh, of all these rules and and how difficult it is when you go into alexandra township or anywhere and you see people who, who don't have the choice uh, of social distancing in the way we do here in in the suburbs and uh yeah it's been it's been a, a tough process to 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 watch that and to and to work in that kind of environment
0: I'm interested in how you, you feel that you need to tell these particular stories, the COVID stories, because you are expanding into other spaces as well. But certainly this is something that you've had to talk about. And I've certainly heard you um, when, when you've covered it uh, and certainly covered our, our president's engagement with it. What's your take on it here in South Africa comparative, for example, to Ebola?
1: Um. Well, it's interesting the sort of feedback you get very quickly on Twitter. I mean, obviously, (laughs) plenty of the social media stuff gets ugly and gets patriotic and nationalistic very quickly. And a lot of people say, well, how dare you criticize South Africa when Britain is doing so much worse? And actually, uh, quite a lot of the coverage we've done here is to compare, for instance, South Africa and Britain, Mm -hmm. um, because... It but was it's BBC. quite yeah. so closely the two countries were mirroring each other in those early stages. The first few weeks after Britain and South Africa had got to 100 cases, they were on an identical journey in terms of the curve upwards. And then South Africa broke off and it yeah. has stayed much lower than many other countries ever since. And so it's been fascinating to try and explore what South Africa has done right and to try and balance that kind of optimistic, exciting success story here with the reality that, you know, President Ramaphosa, all his scientific experts are saying, you know, is it's going to get worse. It's not going to be this quick, easy victory. And then we're safe.
0: It's so uh, interesting because it does talk to like, okay, you can flatten the curve. But flattening the curve doesn't mean that you you lower the number of deaths. You just simply extend the number of deaths over a longer period of time, which is uh, something that we're all going to watch. Andrew, I want to talk to you about something. When I was reading your your bio and the work that you've done, and certainly one of the things that, that intrigued me was the work, obviously, that you've done on the continent with regards to Somalia, and we'll be talking to one of your guests from, from Somalia, but also someone from Ethiopia. But uh, the work that you've done recording and reporting on Islamic militants, al-Shabaab. Mm. Now, the reason I'm interested in that is I've been following with uh, some concern, I suppose one could say, is the shift to um, Islamic militants in the Mozambique uh, region.
1: Exactly, right next door to South Africa. And yep. it's, um, it's a conflict in the north of Mozambique in a, a province called Cabo Delgado. And this yeah. is a, a province that was getting very famous because it had these huge offshore gas fines, the, these fines that were going to turn Mozambique into the new Kuwait, the new Qatar of, of Africa. Um, tens of billions of dollars worth of investment already pouring into this region. And then suddenly uncannily at almost the same time you get this very ugly string of massacres you get this rural uprisings by this shadowy militancy Mm. that no one can quite explain what's going on people think well maybe it's an outside group maybe this is isis arriving Mm. in mozambique and then slowly in the last few months we've seen the leaders of the group actually emerge from the shadows they've captured a couple of towns briefly um, and they said, no, we're, we are inspired by ISIS. In fact, we, we, you know, we're supported by ISIS. But our grudges are local. Our grudges are about you know, things we have here, things that are common all over the world. Um, unemployment, a youth bulge, a jobless youth bulge, um, corruption, a feeling of the haves and the have-nots, and the concern that this massive gas find is, is going to go straight into the pockets of the elite. Yes, Uh, And, yeah, it's it's a fascinating story, and it's very, very rarely covered. And the the local group calls itself Al-Shabaab, and, uh, you know, that's the name of this really ugly um, uprising that's been going on for so long further up the coast, uh, in the Horn of (laughs) Africa, in Somalia, and, you know, a conflict there that I've covered a lot.
0: You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this because, as you've said so correctly, it's a story that's not covered much. And yet, ultimately, it's a story that could have serious impact on South Africa, but also uh, on, on the continent as well.
1: Yes, I mean, the, the parallel people make, actually, from is not just Somalia. It's also northern Nigeria, a group that's called correct. Boko oh. Haram. Boko Haram, yeah. Um, uh, South Africa is so lucky. So lucky, and sometimes one forgets quite how lucky we are here not to have, you know, security guards um, and um, metal detectors outside every shop, as you do in Kenya, as Mm. you do in so many parts of the world now. I mean, we are blissfully um, unthreatened at the moment by that, and that doesn't mean, of course, that that, that a, a small crisis in Mozambique necessarily will spread across into here, but it is nearby, and clearly... It is of huge concern to to Tanzania and to all the neighboring countries when you have a group that is on the rise now. And and the Mozambican government seems to be making all the mistakes that the Nigerians made as well, which is to go in heavy-handed to arrest um, thousands of young people or hundreds of young people and put them in prison without trial and to basically recruit or push more recruits into the hands of the Islamists.
0: You know, you, um, you talk so much about what perhaps one could describe as the ecosystem of stories. And uh, I wondered if as you've gone along as a correspondent after so many years in uh, certainly even if we look at your, your time here on the African continent, you know, there is an ecosystem. There's a thread. It's actually a fabric, the fabric of the continent. And the stories weave their ways from one place to another, whether it's a personal experience, a soulful experience, or whether it's just purely a political news experience.
1: It is. I mean, I think that the, the important thing is to remember that Africa is, is, is not easily summed up. And, um, and should not be sort of lumped together as one amorphous mass, which Absolutely. tends to happen still in Britain. You talk, you know, you, you hear so often people abroad going, oh, poor Africa, Africa needs help. And, you know, part of my job is to, to embrace complexity and try mm. and explain, because so much of my work is, is about explaining to an audience in Britain that actually, you know, The whole narrative of Africa rising, you know, that we've seen for the Mm -hmm. past decade, to explore that, that yes, parts of the continent are flourishing, parts are doing incredibly well, and to to report on that, but then also to explain that there are other places that are doing terribly, and as you say, to try and explore the threads, but also to try and cut some of those threads, and say (laughs) that Ghana is not the same as Mozambique is not the yeah. same as South Africa and and you know and, and it is that complexity which is what makes it so fascinating to me
0: I heard you talking on a podcast um about the stories that you that you do and often the stories you want to do as a, as opposed to the stories that you need to do and um, I'm going to go to a break, but when I come back from the break, I'd really like to know from you what are the stories that matter to you as a correspondent? And uh, do you have a choice, indeed, to cover the ones that matter to you? We'll do that right after the break.
1: Michelle Constant on SAFM.
0: You are the Joseph Breakfast, and our guest presenter is Andrew Harding, BBC Africa correspondent. Andrew, we we were talking about uh, the choice of uh, stories, as opposed to what you may have to cover, but maybe sometimes what you want to cover.
1: Mm, Well, one of the great privilege, the joys of this job is that having this huge continent that the rest of the world, let's be honest, doesn't focus on all the time in the same way. If you're a journalist in Washington, D.C., all you do is Donald Trump. And you know every day that people are going to be calling you from London saying, please do something on this, on this, on this. Whereas here, we get a certain freedom often mm. because there are chunks of time when you know, there, there isn't huge news, if you like, that the rest of the world is dying to find out about, and uh, and it's lovely to be able to, to kind of go and explore. And as you say, um, Michelle, pick pick your own subjects. I, I was thinking of, you know, you're saying what, what what interests me, and what often interests me is the counterintuitive stuff, the things yeah. that that surprise people, particularly back in the UK when they're expecting a certain type of story from Africa, from South Africa. And you you sort of give them the impression that you're indulging that belief and then you turn it on its head. Um, And we did that recently in Harris-Smith, where we went to look at a town, as you'll know, in KZN, well, actually in the border between KZN and the Free State, um, that is failing, bankrupt, absolute disaster, nothing working. And yet we went to tell a story about these local people who are refusing to give up. And instead of waiting for the government to help them out, they've kind of given up on the government, given up on the state, and they are fixing the town themselves. And it was such an inspiring story. Yeah, I read it. I must say, and I was
0: inspired myself.
1: (laughs) And and, and I've learned since that that plenty of other towns uh, around the area have since followed up on that and are now trying to do the same thing. So... So those are the kind of stories that are, are so fascinating and, and you know, give, give one a good feeling about about the job.
0: I mean, of course, the, the challenge of that particular, th- that particular story that I, that I did think about was if one looks at something like the Inglulamiti scenarios which Mistra have put out, the conversation is that ultimately it should be public sector, civil society and um, private sector. And in that particular case, it seems that um, public sector has been left out of the conversation or, or, or just don't want to enter the conversation necessarily at all. So when does the entire society walk together?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing I've learned all all, all these years, um, like 16, I think now covering Africa um, and living here is that when something is broken, it it becomes very hard to fix. I mean, Somalia was one of the most successful, young, independent countries on the continent, Um, you know, in the 70s. It had the highest literacy rate, the fastest growing literacy rate. And if you break it um, and we've seen that in Syria, we've seen it in Iraq. Yeah. Seen as in Somalia. If you break that and we're seeing it to be honest, in the United States in some ways, yeah. um, when you break that it becomes very hard to fix. And so, um, you know, that's why I think that the people who are trying to protect institutions here and elsewhere, the people who understand the importance of institutions, of educational institutions, they're the ones who've got it right.
0: You know, I I want to take you, you talk about Somalia, your book, The Mayor of Mogadishu, and now you've just written, well you haven't just written it, but it's, it's, it's about to be released. These are not gentle people. So the first, of course, about Somalia, and now these are not gentle people about South Africa. Went online, couldn't even look at it as an online book. So, obviously, it's only going to be released, I imagine, in <laughs> June, July I, I actually or something. I
1: finished the last chapter yesterday afternoon. Oh, well, there we
0: go. No wonder I couldn't find it online. No, it
1: should be coming out, I think, in, in August.
0: Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about that particular novel. Well, it's not a novel, that particular storyline.
1: So, I've been covering the Oscar Pistorius trial like everybody else. And there yeah. have been gripped by... A courtroom drama, because I'd never really covered a courtroom drama. And I guess there's a reason why there's so many TV shows about courtrooms. They are, they are fascinating places. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't wanted to write a book about the, the Pistorius case. I was kind of, I'd had enough of it by the time it, it had <laughs> ended. But I was interested in trying to write a kind of uh, non fiction crime story set here and so four years ago I I sat around looking for something that might work and I stumbled upon a a story in the free state a a double murder story Um, and I've been following it ever since and the trial of uh, of six people ended uh, just last week after a very long lengthy process and what I did is I basically just surrendered myself to that story for these past four years and whenever I had spare time and luckily the BBC gave me a bit of spare time and a bit of leeway to keep popping down for this trial that went on for two years and then another year to wait for the judge to give her verdict and this was a a murder um, that has huge racial tensions it had community tensions it was in a farming area near the town of Paris which many people will know And it it seemed to me, I mean, I I don't want to make this story out to be my sense of South Africa, because it's a very gloomy story. It's about racial tensions. It's about community tensions and land and so on. And and I had many, you know, happy impressions of this country and think that, you know, a lot's going right here. But it's a cracking crime story that tore this community apart. And that isn't over yet, because the Six men who were put on trial for murder were all cleared of that. They are now uh, to be sentenced on GBH, uh, on assault, um, later in the year. And it's, it's just one of those stories that just gripped me. I sat down for, a, for a, a few weeks in the court during the bail hearings at the very beginning of this case four years ago. Uh, and, yeah, very quickly realized that, that I, this has got under my skin.
0: Sure. You know, I listen to you talk and I'm like thinking, wow, it, it's almost like a metaphor for South Africa is that it just continues. This is the, the there's, the, the, I mean, people keep going, oh, we've moved on, it's a democracy, but we haven't moved on. We, we've still got a long, mm-hmm. long journey of um, trauma, of privilege uh, that we need to resolve.
1: Uh, and up close, the justice system here is, you know, it's, it's ugly. It's the, these, these, it was two black farm workers who were accused of robbing and assaulting an elderly white farmer. The two men were chased across the fields and beaten severely by a large group of farmers. Uh, the following day, uh, the two men were dead. Um, and, you know, the way that they, in life and in death, were treated by the system, if you like, it, it's clear that they were let down at every stage. They yeah. were... Their, their identities were mixed up through the entire case. Um, basically, they were they were ignored mm-hmm. uh, in life and in death. And so my book was, in part, a, an attempt to kind of bring them back to life and explain their story. And it was also to try and reconstruct from every angle, from every point of view, um, from those who did the beatings, why they were so angry, um, from the j- justice system, the defense, the prosecution, the medical staff who treated them to try and piece this mosaic back together and work out from each perspective. Because the thing about South Africa is that everyone has a perspective that they feel very strongly about. But it it, it seems to me that they don't often see the other side.
0: We're chatting to Andrew Harding, BBC correspondent in South Africa. And uh, when we come back after sports, we're also going to be chatting to some of his guests as well.
2: The Jet said Breakfast on SAFM. Destination unknown.
0: Well, our destination is actually going to take us all the way up to Ethiopia and then down to Kenya because our guest today is Andrew Harding. He's a journalist and an author, and he is the Africa correspondent for the BBC. Andrew, before we go to your first guest in one of my most fascinating countries, I think, uh, in the world, is I I just wanted to ask you about this idea of, as a journalist, how you are literally crossing crossing lines all the time. So you go from TV to radio to social media, Podcasts and and I, I'm even thinking about the wonderful um, from our own correspondent on on BBC World, which really does focus less on you as a radio journalist, but more on you as a writer and the ability to tell the story.
1: I'm I'm biased. I'm a lifer at the BBC. I've been I've been working for them for nearly thirty years. But one of the great advantages is that you are not. Stuck in one format, which can be frustrating if you're you're endlessly turning out two-minute TV reports. um, It can get a little bit, um, you know, samey day after day, whereas on the BBC we get the chance to make documentaries, there's radio, as you say, and each of these outlets uh, requires a very different type of writing, Mm. type of thought process, and so it, it keeps you on your toes and uh, and it allows you, yeah. If you've got something to say that doesn't really fit into a news report, you can write one of those, as you say, from our own correspondence, which is really the, the back story, what it's like it. being on the road, mm. the gossip, the anecdotes, and, <laughs> and the stuff that would never make it into a, you know, a very prim and proper TV report.
0: Yeah, I was talking to uh, uh, one of our journalists, uh, our jazz journalist, who's writing very different stories earlier on in the show, just talking about how he writes and now his writing, which is, is nothing to do with jazz, but it almost sounds like jazz as well, mm-hmm. so it was such a lovely comment. Your first guest, Andrew, is uh, takes us to Ethiopia. Maza Sayoum is in Ethiopia, and uh, why have you chosen Maza? Well, I
1: wanted to um, you know, we, we're all in these bubbles at the moment, <laughs> um, particularly in South Africa, like any big country, you know, we're all introspective, we're focused not on the rest of the continent, but particularly now in this coronavirus bubble. So I thought, why not reach up to the far end of the continent and see how they're doing in their bubble? And Maza, I knew well when she was working here. She's an American Ethiopian. She headed back to the U.S. And then she called me a a few weeks ago and she'd returned to Ethiopia for for family reasons. And we were trying to work out where was the best place, like everyone was doing it, it sort of international People who, who who move around the world. Okay, you know, should I move back to Britain? What about the family? What about the kids? And Maza and I were discussing where, you know, where was the best place to, to sit this out? <laughs> and I thought it would be nice to hear from her how it's going.
0: Maza, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, okay, we we want to know how's that exactly as Andrew says. How's that sitting art going? I'm assuming you must be in Addis, and I'm wondering how it is. Yes, you know, and Andrew um, is uh, a very sweet friend who was willing <laughs> to take
2: my call when I was frantically trying to figure out if I should buy a new ticket because my airline had canceled flights at that point. Um, I was flying on Turkish Air through Istanbul, and they were no longer going. And so Andrew very calmly listened to my my panicked call, you know, to ask what his thoughts were about whether I should sit it out here or try and rush back to the states. So, you know, things here are relatively. Um, Calm. You know, uh, there so far are about 300 confirmed cases, which for a country of over 100 million people is not that many. So, you know, people like myself who work in yeah. public health, we do worry that maybe the testing capacity is not as, as great as it should be. Um, so, and, but the contact tracing is going pretty well from what I can tell. And the Minister of Health, who's a very young woman, um, has been yes, I saw that. on Twitter and on the radio on a daily basis. You know, Twitter is quite is quite hard. You know, people like me can access it, but the data costs in Ethiopia are astronomically expensive, even more expensive than than South Africa. So, I think it's a limited number of people who can access information that way. But she has been giving radio updates about the contact tracing. There have been lots of public service announcements about how people can try and keep safe. Something that is quite interesting and different, I find, is that Ethiopia really resisted implementing a total lockdown. Um, The Prime Minister was very concerned about the fact that so many people are part of the informal economy. Um, I think he was also worried that it might lead to social unrest if so many people were out of work, so what the government has done is really encourage physical distancing. Um, Schools and government offices have been closed since early on, so the first case was discovered on March 13th, or the official case was announced on, on March 13th, so Schools and government offices were closed early on, and then eventually, about a month later, a state of emergency was instituted, I think, in preparation for maybe a potential lockdown and being able to to handle social unrest if if that happened following the lockdown. But as of yet, a lockdown has not been implemented, um, so it's very different from what you all are experiencing in South Africa. You know, when I... Um, Go out. I see people still sitting in coffee shops, still sitting cool. in restaurants. Um, the taxis have a limited capacity now. They can only fill 50%. Um, and there is a guidance now about face covering. So that's something that in the last week, the police has been stopping people and asking them to, to cover their faces. But, you know, so far, I would say it's quite calm. There is a, on the one hand, sense of anxiety. You know, people realize that given Ethiopia's health system and, and the struggles um, that the government has had, in improving the health system capacity, that if a real pandemic hits, it would be very difficult for the country to manage. Um, But on the other hand, you know, I think Ethiopians, and and Andrew, you probably know this from from your travels up here, you know, people are sort of like, well, you know, we've survived so many other things, Mm. you know, people Mm. die of measles and die of, of diarrheal diseases. And, you know, there's also some part of the population that says, look, you're asking us to wash our hands 20 times a day, half the population doesn't even
0: have, have water, running yeah. water yeah.
2: you know so I think there's a combination of, you know, people are hopeful um, people are trying to keep calm and there's a little bit of, you know, people chuckling under their breath saying, oh gosh you know, we died so many other things <laughs> and now you're you're yeah. telling us that we have to be careful mm-hmm. about this, this new thing we've never heard of. So it's a mixed bag but I think Andrew, you were right that it was better to sit it out here than <laughs> to go back um, to, to the U.S., which is obviously really still struggling well, I hope that proves um, to, to be the,
1: case.
2: the
0: epidemic. Yeah. Andrew, the choices for Mazo were obviously Ethiopia. Um, Mazo, was South Africa part of that choice? No, no, oh, this so
2: time
3: was, not,
0: no. So it was either Ethiopia or America, Andrew, you obviously advised go to Ethiopia.
1: Or we'll stay, stay there, yeah. It was a weird time, wasn't it? And, um, um, you know... Uh, who knew what was happening the sense of an apocalypse coming and of mm. course it's proved to be something much slower much um, much harder to pin down
0: they call it anticipatory anxiety mm. apparently mm. we are all just in anticipation Maza, um I wanted to know, you know, you mentioned the, the, the youth of your, your wonderful um, health. Well, I don't know if she is wonderful, but your health minister. And I was terribly excited when I saw how young she was. And she sounds like she's, she's really engaging on a whole load of levels. And I wondered how Ethiopians were feeling about the fact that the World Health Organizator Director General, Tedros Ghebreyesus, is also um, Ethiopian. Whether there was a sense of pride, whether there was an alignment, what, what your sense was with that?
2: Yes, there's definitely a sense of pride amongst the people that I speak to. You know, he is well known here. I have not lived in Ethiopia since I was a small child, but, um, you know, people who have lived here for, for the last 20 years, you know, remind me that he was a minister of health for, I think he was a minister of health for about seven years and then went on to become minister of foreign affairs. For four years before he moved on to WHO, and um, you know, he—I think the the fact that he is has a PhD in community health mm. is quite notable. You know, there is such a need for community health work um, in an epidemic like this. You know, And he's not a medical doctor, which I think is quite unusual for WHO Director Generals. Um, so people are aware of all that here. When I speak to people and, you know, ask them about him, you know, they say that he is a very well-known person. And there is definitely a sense of pride, one, you know, because of Dr. Tedros, but also because of the Prime Minister Abdi and the fact that he received the Nobel Peace Prize, you know, not just yeah. six months ago or about, was it six months ago, Andrew? Maybe a little bit more. I remember you and I speaking about it. When I was um, in in South Africa last, but there is Ethiopians are very proud about the fact that you know they have these figures that are respected in the global community.
0: Andrew, I want to hand over to you. I know you've got loads of questions, and you're the journalist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
1: curious: is is there anything that um, that you can't get hold of? Uh, -of Alcohol cigarette? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> no, and um, I feel
2: bad for for all of you with all those restrictions, but no, I mean aside from the things that are just difficult you know in Ethiopia to get a hold off you know hold of anyway you know um South Africa definitely has much more access to to goods from from the outside world than ethiopia does um but you know things are expensive for people you know so for example, mm. yesterday, I went to go buy these medical face masks you know because I heard the police was stopping people um and, you know, they are about a dollar a piece, which for most people is, is is quite expensive, yeah. yeah. So, um, and there are times when they are not available, um, and then just not drinking alcohol, but rubbing alcohol, you know, things like that. Hand sanitizer, you know, initially in March ran out um, because everybody was rushing to the pharmacy to try and stock up, stock up on that. Even things like bleach had run out of the uh, of the shops because people were quite frantic about being able to to clean. Because um, we kept hearing on the radio, you know, about the need to to clean things mm-hmm. with, with
0: bleach and other chemicals. Yeah. So, unfortunately, we need to say goodbye, Marza, because we need to go on to uh, Andrew's second guest. So I want to say thank you very much for joining us. Certainly on my part, I think your country is a fascinating place. So um, I think it's going to be interesting for you as you spend time there. Do you have any intentions of going back to the States? I will be going back to the States as soon as,
2: you know, travel sort of opens up, and um, yes, I will be heading back there, so hopefully things will have have improved by the time I head back in that direction. Um, yes, and thank you so much for having me, and Andrew, thank you for the invite. Thanks, I think thank Andrew you, was- surprised by my level of enthusiasm when he asked me if I would do this. I was thrilled. So thank you for inviting me to join you.
0: We appreciate that. Maza Sayum, she's in Ethiopia in Addis Ababa as we speak. When we come back from the break, we'll uh, go to Andrew's second guest.
2: The Jet Set Breakfast on SAFM, Destination
1: Unknown.
0: You are with SAFM 104 to 107, and uh, this is, of course, the JSB, the Jet Set Breakfast. Our guest is the journalist Africa correspondent uh, for the BBC, Andrew Harding, and he has written a couple of books. He's got one coming out in July, and his second guest takes us all the way to Kenya. Andrew, who are we talking to?
1: We're talking to Ilham Gassar, who's a, a friend, an old friend, who is British and Somali, and is currently with her family in Kenya. But uh, I got to know her when I was writing and researching a book about Somalia, a country that I'm I've always been slightly obsessed with because of its sort of extraordinary capacity for extremes, I suppose, which is always good for journalists. Um, but a place I love, and Ilham is one of those people who bravely decided to leave Britain and go back to help her country rebuild. And it's something that's always fascinated me. And I don't think it's enough coverage and and respect, frankly, because it's a very courageous thing to do, to leave the safety of a a Western democracy and return to a, a country like Somalia that's still really dangerous and still struggling. And Ilham's just an extraordinary person. So hello, Ilham, are you there?
3: Hi, good morning, Andrew. Thank you for the warm introduction.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. How are you doing in Kenya?
3: Oh, everything is going well. Um, yesterday we had a, a further extension of the curfew, additional 31 days added. So not what we were expecting, but it is what it is. Curfew is very unpredictable.
0: Well, um, I want to just jump in there. Andrew's en- mentioned such an interesting, uh, the idea of going home. And, um, I mean, if I think of Samang and her book, um, which talks so much about where home could be and what home is, perhaps you could just briefly give us an insight as to your your, your decision to go home
3: well like you said, home has become kind of a very fluid term nowadays. Um, home seems to be everywhere, but my decision yeah. to go back to my um, country of origin so my birth home was my first trip was back in two thousand and which was pretty different to what Somalia is right now. And it was just searching for a sense of, not belonging, but I, I had uh, my grandma, which I loved dearly, and my dad was an only child, which is very rare for Somalia's family kind of composition. So I went back to kind of figure things out and to see what was going on and to kind of um, understand why she chose to remain because we all fled and we all left. She was the only member of the family who decided to stay. Hmm. And what she used to say to us was, oh, I'm not going to go back. I'm not going to go to anywhere use somebody else's toilet. So for her, her decision to remain in Somalia remained because of her choices of where she went. So when I went back, I kind of felt like I was given so much opportunities and growing up in the UK and um, living my whole childhood in in London and experiencing like, no what normal children experience. And then returning to and and seeing the destruction. And on the opposite side, how people were in general more happy than we were back, in, back at home in the UK. Hmm. So they appreciated little things and never complained as much as we did. And I found that fascinating. I'm like, I could see they have nothing compared to what we have. But yet again, they seem to see the bright side of everything and have so much hope for a better day tomorrow even though when you speak to them, they were living just for the moment. Nobody knew they were going to be alive the next day, so they made the day they were living very enjoyable and memorable for them.
0: You know, and this is a question that I'd I'd maybe ask both of you, is this idea of sitting out um, coronavirus in a country that is not your um, place of birth, for example. So if one looks at one's place of birth, the, the kind of concerns you may have about family, etc, for both of you that is the case and i'm wondering how are you feeling about that how, how does that how does that play out for you emotionally
3: well, it, it's very difficult because for me for me like home right now is three different places so um, I work in Somalia and I go in and out and I spend fifty percent of my time living there, even though it was where I was born and technically one of assume that's where home would be. It kind of isn't. So when I migrated to Nairobi, specifically for what purposes it's conveniently located, it's more or less you're in and out of Mogadishu in a day and be in the afternoon in Nairobi. But when corona kind of hit before the borders were shut, I was actually in Galcario the day before um, the government announced that they would be closing its borders. So my first intention was Oh my God, I need to get home and get to my kids before this thing becomes any worse than this. Yeah. So I came back to Nairobi literally on the last flight. I think my last moment issue, and when I got here, still. So my the larger part of my family, my my whole family apart from my immediate nuclear family, is in the UK. And I remember a few days before that my brother left Nairobi back. To London, and my mum was supposed to come, and everything kind of stands still. So now I get the question of nobody knows how long this will take, nobody knows what's going to happen. Mm. Um, How do you feel about being in Nairobi and technically, even though I'm with my kids, being alone without a family and not being able to travel to London and back, or anybody coming? and kind of shut the door so you kind of find yourself alone when before yeah. Corona you felt like you had everybody around you because everybody was in, within reach or eight hours away. So there was a hope of saying, oh, if I wanted to go to see my mother, I could just, it would take me eight hours to get to London. So now
0: it's unpredictable time. I'm very
1: lonely, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Andrew, how about you guys?
1: So so I'm a bit rootless. I I mean, I grew up an expat kid in Belgium and I've spent my entire professional career living abroad. I know expat is a rather arrogant British phrase. I'm a migrant, I suppose. Yeah. Um, So the idea of going back to Britain, I mean, my parents are no longer alive. I have a sister and an aunt and my mother-in-law and other relations, but but this is home uh, here in South Africa and my three sons, uh, we brought them back from the UK, two of them at university there. And so this does feel like home and we're hunkered down and yeah, I, this feels like the right place.
0: Yeah. Andrew, I want to close off with you because we're going to run out of time and have to go into the news. Um, I want to say thank you very, very much to your guest. It was really wonderful to talk to you, Ilham. Andrew, w- you, you, we talk about... Um, and you mentioned this right up front about that. Yes, um, you know, when you were writing the book, These Are Not Gentle People, that's not your only sense of South Africa. And I think you've highlighted that you feel so lucky, I mean, that you are with your family with coronavirus here in South Africa. If we look at a future in this country, and I'm taking us back to this country. Obviously, if we've gone to, Som- uh, to to Somalia in conversation, Ethiopia, and also Kenya, as well as the UK. If you look back, if you look forward, where where do you look to in terms of this country?
1: Oh, nice easy question. To <laughs> um, I, I have sort of, as I was saying about Somalia, journalists tend to look for extremes, and people, particularly when they look at Africa, tend to look for the you know, will it follow some disastrous Zimbabwe option, or will it soar like, you know, it's the Nigeria or Norway comparison. And I've always felt that South Africa would resist those extremes, Mm. that that it has its own internal strength, its own internal dynamics, and as frustrating as some of the politics can be, um, it does feel like it has its own forward momentum, and and it would be, I think, you know, I think there there are clearly... And big risks and this economic impact of, of COVID-19 is going to be mm. a huge thing for this country to adapt to and, and around the world you know people are talking about not rebuilding as it was but remaking countries and Ramaphosa has talked about that here but he doesn't have much wiggle room to do that and I think mm. it is going to make the stakes much higher the politics much more difficult um, but South Africa is an amazing place
0: Well, I hope uh, once you get out of COVID, what's the first place you're going to (laughs) go (laughs) to?
1: God, I haven't even begun to think about that. Um, Mozambique, maybe. Go to the beach.
0: (sighs) Oh, fantastic. Andrew Harding, thank you so much for joining us. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. He was our guest presenter for today. Don't forget, talking of the beach, the people who took us on a walk along Summer Strand Beach in front of...